What's up, everybody? Michael Lee, Kevin Knighton here, and we got a special guest for y'all today. Um, we, we, we try to go through our, our friends list in the industry, and newly on our friends list for here in the last year is Mr. Chad Belding with Foul Life, and I, I, I don't even know the list of accolades that fall under Chad's brands right now. He's got so many things going on, so many irons in the fire. Uh, I think it's pretty admirable that you can just keep up with what you're doing, man. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder why I keep biting more off. <laughs> I think um, we we love our industry so much that it's hard to say no to a lot of things. And so we just keep over committing ourselves and then wondering if there's going to be two of us pop up so we can get everything done sometime. That'd be nice. That'd be nice. <laughs> Well, Kevin, what you're down? You're, you're you're at the home office. I can see you're down there. You know, with your Florida playground. Yeah, down here in the heat. Hundred feels like it's hundred something degrees outside. I don't know what it really is. Well, I'm, I'm sure, uh, Chad. Uh, you're you're are you you out at home in in Vegas? There. I'm in. I'm actually in Reno, Tahoe, northeast or northwest of Vegas a little bit. And it's about it's going to be 101 here today. We don't have the humidity all got, so it's a little bit more comfortable. But it's it's scorching hot. It's just like being in an oven, right? Yeah, it's just dry heat and high desert heat. And, you know, I mean, you sweat like crazy. Nothing like y'all encounter down there in Georgia, but um, Florida area. But it's still one of them deals to where it's nice to jump in the pool at lunchtime for sure and, and get your body temperature down. <laughs> we have to put ice in our pool a lot just to make it tolerable down here. Yeah. I don't know. It's just a way, just a way of life, though. We're used to it, right? It's just what you grew up with. You just sweat it out. Keep moving. Yeah, I agree. At least we're not out hanging my, deer stands. I told my kids yesterday to go get in the swimming pool, and they said, no, Dad, the water's too hot. We don't want to get in there right now. <laughs> yeah, like taking a bath. I've been leaving my cover open at night because it seems to get, you know, it gets down 59, 60 degrees. It'll cool it off pretty good for the most part of the day and get in there in the morning and get a good swim. But it's it's like bath water by three o'clock so we're doing what we can yeah literally unless we get some rain which obviously we get more rain than you guys do but unless we get some rain it's only 75 here at night 78 so it doesn't really cool off a whole lot it's just yeah. one of them things you just deal with it <laughs> yeah, I, like that part of the country. I like that part of the country i hang a lot I'm in Georgia quite a bit. Florida. I'm actually filming an episode in Florida this year, first time ever. I'm going to be down by Orange Beach and going to be rocking with the Florabama a little bit and the guys over there and then uh, Brandon and them and then hunting. I can't remember the name of the marsh area, but we're going to be filming some widgeons and redheads and teal and stuff down there. I think it might be kind of neat, but it'll be my first time sh shooting ducks in Florida. I've done gators and osceolas and been done a lot of offshore fishing, but this will be the first time for waterfowl. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I guess in the big scheme of waterfowl things, and, and we'll jump into kind of everything uh, under the gauntlet here I've got written out to talk about. But, you know, I don't, I mean, I know duck hunting is big. It's, and I think, and maybe I'm wrong, Chad, you interject any time you feel like it, if I say something that's off track. But I feel like that sport has grown a lot in the last, I don't know, five or 10 years, especially. And I think the younger generation is definitely getting more involved, at least down here where I'm at. Like it, like all the high school kids, I mean, that's kind of their thing is to go go duck hunting in this this part of the country right now. Do you see that as kind of a, a pattern? Yeah, I'd like to say that the duck hunting overall population or <clears throat> numbers have, have grown. Obviously, it's still one of the smallest sectors behind deer and turkey, even predator. But 
it's um I, I think that we, you know down there in the SEC and and kind of those the fraternity brothers down there we've had huge success with our lifestyle lines um, you know running with whatever school it is and it's funny because like Georgia and Florida and South Carolina, North Carolina, when you go places like Saskatchewan or Manitoba or Alberta and you're with an outfitter up there, or you go over to any of the, you know, historic flooded timber places in Arkansas or along the Mississippi Delta, I've met so many people from your guys' part of the country because of what you alluded to before we started this conversation is like a lot of hunting down there is, is getting the cypress stumps in the morning, kill a couple wood ducks and be back by nine. Um, you don't have a whole lot of decoy mallards or, or the vocalization. So I think with the, the way that the Internet has grown and the way that people are getting their content now, when I was coming up, man, I was I was on the road. I was at every contest from Eastern Maryland for the World Goose, the Stuttgart for the World Duck, the U.S. Open, the Winchester, all the Grand Nationals, all of them, right? That's how we – you couldn't go on YouTube and, and find – hours and hours and hundreds of hours of content on how to operate. You'd have to go get a Tim Grounds cassette or Fred Zink had a DVD called 24-7 or a, or a CD, I mean. And it was tougher to learn, but now you can actually get good video content and hear master class routines, if you will, um, and see hand positions and get good instruction and tips and tactics. So I think that that's gotten people into it, even though it's a very intimidating barrier and entry to get into it because one, the financial means, two, all the regulations and laws that go with it, and three, a lot of people don't understand the, the, you know, the weather and the climate when it starts to be December, January, and how to be prepared. But I'll end it by saying, you know, a lot of times you talk to old timers, you know, that were hunting ducks back in the commercial hunting days and hunting in the 50s and 60s, and you, you think of the words like these were the glory days, or these were the, these were the best days of our lives, you know, like the golden time for duck hunting. Well, I think it's right now. We got we have conservation um, that is unbelievably, you know, at, at its highest with organizations from Delta, which we're going to be in Little Rock this coming weekend at the Delta Waterfell National Convention. We'll be speaking down there with Realtree with the launch of Max 7 for three days this coming weekend in Arkansas. Then you got Ducks Unlimited. you got regional people like California Waterfowl that is very evident in their, all of their focus and what they're doing out on the West Coast. And then you mix that with, you know, all the other conservation. This is this is the time to hunt. You got more birds in the flyways. You got great predator management. You have great conservation. You have great, you know, soil economy or food plots and everything that deer hunters do. And then on top of that, the technology and the products that you and I have discussed before, Michael, like you could be a woman, a nine-year-old boy or a man that's in his 60s and his 70s and be comfortable for hours in the duck blind now where our guy, my grandpa was hunting in in rubber boots and jeans, right? Like, how did he stay dry? So, like, now I think it's it's that time that, and then you mix on top of that the pandemic, and we have all this new blood in the pipeline. We got to do our jobs to keep them here now. But I think that all the pieces of that puzzle are in place to grow the 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 duck hunting population and people that really get into it. But I wouldn't sugarcoat it and say by any means it's easy or that it's going to happen overnight. Every piece from dog training to calling and vocalizations to shotgunning to decoying to shadows and sunshine and, and hide and concealment and scouting and everything that we take for granted because we've done it so long. So it's kind of becomes riding a bike, even though there's still challenges, new challenges that present them every day. Um, I, I want to be I want to find more mentoring programs to help people understand how special waterfowl hunting is. So, yeah, I think it's growing, but I also think that it could be a quick grow and then people getting out of it if we're not careful and we make sure they understand um, how to con continuously experience some type of success every time they go out. And that doesn't mean a limit by any means. That means understanding Mother Nature and God and the creation and the sunrise and the ducks and the dogs and all of that. If we keep teaching that method of how to look at the hunt and how to execute it, 
then I think the days of piles make smiles are over. We need to get more back into the living off the land and, and mixing that mallard breast with some garden vegetables and a cold, cold beer and, and showing that this lifestyle is all-encompassing and truly special. You, you hit the nail on the head with all of that, man. I mean, I think it's spot on. And, you know, being from down here in the south, you know, like you said, we I grew up duck hunting with my dad. I killed my first mallard when I was, I don't know, I, I think I was probably six or eight years old, but it was one of them. That's just what flew in in the in the wood duck hole that morning, you know, and, and I, I shot him with a little single shot 410. But I, that memory has stuck with me, at, you know, 40 years now or so. And um, the things with, with that come along with the, the camaraderie and the lifestyle and all that, to me, I think that's the draw to this is, you know, Kevin and I have spent enough years, and Chad, you too, I mean, sitting in the deer stand and, and watching sunrise and sunset, so maybe you and a camera guy or just you by yourself, but there's a whole different deal when you're sitting on a body of water watching that sunrise and you're watching ducks come in and you're doing those kind of things that um, I think more people could appreciate everything we do um, and the hard work that comes into it just by sitting in there one morning and, and watching it go down. Yeah, I agree. The camaraderie, the socializing that happens, um, and the walks of life that make up every day, you know, like I can't tell you how many strong relationships can be formed in a, a duck line. I think Duck Camp USA, Turkey Camp, Deer Camp's the most special place on earth, better than Paris or Rome or the Almafi Coast or a golf, any golf course in the world. It's just that you become fast friends, memories are made, stories are written, and then you 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 never really get that type of competitiveness or that or that I'm better than you and I think that one of the things that we need to continue to do a good job of is checking our ego at the door and and get along to where a deer hunter like both of you understands a duck hunter like me and if I want to get into deer hunting y'all are going to mentor me and vice versa right and I think that I think that the days of getting pissed because a veteran gets to hunt on Sunday before opening day in his wheelchair or her wheelchair, then so be it. Or if there's special days for youth hunts, then so be it. It's it's crazy to think the mindset would be that all the ducks are for me. You know, that's like I'm an average duck hunter at best. Like I I've always tried to build. We I started banded in 2008. Our slogan was the hunting is the common de denominator that creates all is is the common denominator that brings all these walks of life together. And I just saw that hunting with an admiral or hunting with a musician like you guys do or hunting with an athlete and then hunting with a high school janitor and a fighter pilot and it was just crazy that once you're in camp it's like man we're tight we're buddies and then you get cell phone numbers and then all of a sudden you're doing it again and you look forward to that so i think that there, there's a lot to be said about the entire execution of camp in that again if you take it for granted and you don't understand the small special parts of it that that are happening right before your eyes, then that's when you're just like, wow, it came and it was gone. Because you're going to have to move on. You have to leave Illinois, Pike County, and you're probably going to move down to Kansas on another deer camp. But you just had 72 hours or four days, 72 hours or four days with some friends in Illinois that you should have taken advantage of and created an unbelievable bond in those four days. And that's what hunting allows you to do to where you can't just be like, oh, we're off to the next one. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm sad to leave. The anticipation's still here. 
and I can't wait to get to Kansas. But man, thank you all so much for what we just experienced in Pike County, Illinois. And that's that's how I've looked at every duck camp we go to because, as you guys know, Michael and Kevin is like this will this will destroy you. The road life, the loneliness, the darkness, the 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 going from one place to another, and having all the gear and the cameras and the charging and the uploading and the servers issues and the batteries and the everything that goes into it. People would be crazy not to think you would get tired of it. It, you, you get tired of it in an instance, and you got to keep that morale up and that, that attitude, like always optimistic because of those special little increments that literally will build you for the rest of your life. And when, when a new person sees that, I think that that's what gets them and goes, man, I can't wait to get back. I cannot wait. I just love what we did. So I think that, you know, what you touched on of, of new people coming in and the, 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 the sector of duck hunting growing, I think we're at, you know, 2.1 million, 2.2 million duck stamps sold every year. Um, but that's a little tiny bit of the four, you know, the 15, 16 million hunters in the United States, but it is growing and it's positive and it's because you can go out and consistently see ducks and geese wherever you're out in the country now because of those, you know, those before mentioned conservation efforts. Absolutely. And for, for those of y'all listening that I, I didn't quite make a formal introduction here with, with Chad, but, uh, Chad done a lot of stuff in the in the outdoor space especially the waterfowl space um but chad is one of the hosts and kind of and founder of fowl life which you can watch on outdoor channel every week and um it's a great produced show uh just awesome duck footage in itself but you guys are really in my opinion y'all y'all are leading the forefront of, of keeping everybody on the pulse of the conservation side of of what's going on as well and how important all these things that we're talking about are, are um, so just take a second, Chad, like how did the foul life come about? Like what, what was your idea? You know, day one, you're sitting here, you're, you're grinding away. What, what, what was your vision to start with and, and have you gotten there yet? First off, I can't believe that we're getting ready to hit the road in September and film season 15. Like that blows my mind that we're right now currently are in 14, which you guys are in the same boat. It's amazing that that, mm-hmm. that, People still want to see it or sponsor us or talk about it. Um, but it all happened because of, I think, passion. I think that that I was an average caller going to all these competitions, but I was a businessman, and I had this what the spirit of entrepreneurship. I really feel like my entire life I was born with the entrepreneurial spirit. So every contest I would go to, I would network, and I would open doors, and I would try to create a common thread with somebody that either I knew of or I respected or I heard of. Like I'd meet Sean Mann. I'd be like, oh, my God, it's Sean Mann. And then you go up to him and the dude is like your uncle. And he puts you in a headlock and gives you a, a you know, rubs your head. And I'm just like, man, that's cool. And then Fred Zink in Port Clinton, Ohio, that became tight. Um, and I started, I started winning a little bit. And I started seeing some success. And at the same time, my main focus was predator hunting because I live – in the land of mountain lions and coyotes and bobcats out here to where it's nothing to go out and call in 20, 20 coyotes in a weekend, right? If the weather's right or go tree a bunch of cats, if you got the right dogs. So we were practicing predator management and Freddie Zink loved that idea. So we started filming at the same time I was on his 24 seven waterfowl videos. I was filming this series called devil dogs that we were creating DVDs. If anybody knows what those are, we were putting out DVDs in Walmart and Max Prairie wings and Simmons and all these retailers across the country. And 
um, we were showcasing predator management done the right way, trying to be patient, let them hunt you up, let the dogs get close, shotgunning them, like doing some really, we were going to Hermosillo, Mexico, in the Sonora Desert, and all over Canada, and, and in Saskatchewan, you can't shoot them as a resident, or as a non-resident, but we would bring a resident with us, and I would call, and Grant Kuypers would sh- be behind the 22-250, so we were trying to get creative with that, and at that time, Freddie said, we're going to, we're going to go to Grant Kuypers, um, and we're going to film a new, a new season of 24-7, and we want you to be one of the main guys on it. And I was like, oh, wow. So I get up there, and we're filming with Josh Noble, who works for us now, but at the time he was the hunting buyer for Sportsman's Warehouse. And we were, I was doing these weird dances and the decoys and the pop and lock and the, 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 the shopping cart, and people wouldn't quit talking about it. They literally wouldn't quit talking about it. So my name started getting out there as part of the, the Zinc team. Thank you, Freddie and Don Zinc. They really gave, gave me a huge start in this. And then on top of that, the competition calling kept, you know, snowballing and gaining momentum. Well, the next year, Freddie brings me up there, and there's a film crew up there with us, help filming at the same time we're filming, and it's Ducks Unlimited's Water Dog TV with Justin Tackett that was produced by Shannon Nardi at Dancing Dog Productions, and they were airing on the Versus channel. I mean, this was a legitimate TV show with ratings, and so we're up there, and I cut it, you know, I, 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 you know, break bread with those guys. We become friends. He's a football player from the, the Razorbacks. He played strong safety for Arkansas. And great dude. And Shannon's a sweetheart. And they're like, we've never hunted out west. We've never filmed in California. We've never been to Idaho. And I'm like, well, let's go. So we went to Idaho, Oregon, Nevada, and we hunted and we did four episodes of Ducks Unlimited's Water Dog TV in 2006. And when that trip got over, the production company that was called Divine Productions in Tulsa, Oklahoma called me. And said, would you ever be interested in doing a show about you? We loved what you did on camera. We'd love to talk about sponsors and a pilot and all this. So I'm like, oh, dude, I love this idea. And so at that time, my my first business I ever started was portable toilets. We were growing like crazy (laughs) in my portable toilet company, Sierra Restroom Solutions, I had with Keith and Charles. And um, uh, I was, you know, it it allotted me the time to, to go in the fall and the winter because construction would slow down and special events would slow down. So I, in my office, Michael and Kevin, I had this huge mount in my toilet office and it was nine greenheads all banded coming through flooded timber with a redneck sign, like a no trespassing sign shot up. And then I put a plaque on the front of it and I called the, the mount strike up the band. I got all the trees and treated them out of Arkansas. All the ducks were killed in Arkansas and none of, they weren't banded when I killed them, but I put bands on that I'd killed with other birds. So that's in my office. I'm going through every day, selling toilets, pumping toilets, and then trying to create this thing. My first, my first title was called The Duck Doctor, Dr. Duck. And I was going to write a prescription of success every episode. And I'm like, I'm not good enough at this to write a prescription of success. <laughs> so then I, we got rid of that name, and we started going back and forth. And I'm like, man, I want to call this The Foul Life. And Mike Devine, the owner of the company, is like, I love it. One thing leads to the next. I'm in my toilet office. He calls me. Chad, my mom's ill. She was putting her in the Mayo Clinic, and I'm not going to have the time, the resources, the financial financial means to do this project. By that time, Michael and Kevin, we were at SHOT Show twice. We were talking with Earl Osterling, the VP of marketing for Toyota that I met on a, in a whitetail bear duck camp up in Saskatchewan. I was talking to Jeremy Sage and Brian Ellis at Sportsman's Warehouse. Fred Zeke was going to be our call. We Boom, 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 boom. And I said, Mr. Mike, do you mind if I try this on my own? And he says, Go for it. And I had never been to SHOT Show. This was in 2006. I said, do you mind if I try this on my own? And I leaned back in my chair just like this, and I looked at that duck mount, and I said, I'm going to try to name a company Bandit. I know I'm not going to get it, but I'm going to call my intellectual property attorney, Brian Hardy, and I'm going to try to secure this name. And we got it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. 
we secured Banded right there. So the first company we started was Banded Productions. Started filming the Foul Life season one in the fall of 2008, and then we went to air on the Sportsman's Channel in 2009. And the very first episode was in Canada, and I got probably five emails after that episode, maybe four. Because everybody wants to say, oh, man, it just flooded in. No, it was a slow growth. But all of those emails were like, what nut car are you using? What kind of ammo were you shooting? I'm like, oh, wow, the money's in manufacturing. The money's in product. So that's when I said, we're going to start banding gear. And at that time, Mask and, and uh, Skyscrape and Punk Ass had the tap-out show on Spike TV. And Dana White was blowing up the UFC in the mid-2000s when Randy Couture and Liddell and Matt Hughes and everybody was on their A-game. And so I was paying attention to tap out. I was paying attention to affliction. And I was watching this show where these guys would go to a local gym around the country, pick a fighter, sponsor him, and then put him in a bigger fight. And Dana White would maybe have the chance to sign him to the UFC. So I started paying attention to that. And I'm like, I like that idea of full frontal, in your face, more aggressive. You go into Cabela's at that time and have a mule deer on there and say something like, can't tell you Canyon, that my dad would wear. But at that time, I was more I was more into I want to do something more full frontal. I want to be affliction. I want to be the tap out of hunting. So I, I had my artist design two geese looking at each other back to back with their beaks open, with their tongues drawn, and they were talking smack like geese do because they hate each other. They don't. It's not birds of a feather flock together in the goose world. And I named that shirt Double Cluck and Jive because geese make a sound called the Double Cluck. And I named it after a Guns N' Roses song of Axl Rose wrote called Double Talk and Jive on Use Your Illusion 1. And I wore that shirt. And after that, people were like, dude, I want that shirt. So then we came out with Red Dawn, Mallard's Flying Over Sunset. Then we came out with Green Tops. And then we just kept doing it. And then John O'Rourke, the national hunting buyer for Cabela's, back when Cabela's was in Sydney, called me and said, we want the shirts. We're getting a lot of ask for them. And so I'm like, I'm going bigger than this. So that's when I had to make the, the decision of, am I going to be in this game or am I just going to you know, keep working with guys like Freddie, who's still my friend. We're filming an episode this season together. I, I started Banded Calls and went in business against Zinc Calls. Um, I, we started uh, you know, with the Banded gear, the full frontal tap, you know, tap out style shirts and hoodies. They went to Banded Calls. And then in 2011, I'm at SHOT Show doing a – appearance for our then shotgun sponsor escort shotguns and annie mccormick at legacy sports and that's when john o'rourke came to us and said we need to talk and this is the guy that already put us in business and had po's of two thousand calls at a time going to cabela's he says y'all are onto something with this name bandit but it's bigger than a duck collar and t-shirt and that's when i said look at christian curtis and eric larsgaard my partners and said we need capital so we started sleeping on couches and trying to find money telling our story and i and you hear this all the time, but the rest is kind of history because we're at 805 dealers with Bannon now. We have 4,000 SKUs, the number one selling waiter in the country for duck hunting, which was a battle. That's a product that's tough with all this, the abuse a waiter takes. We took a lot of flack going into that game. But, and then in August of 2015, we were lucky enough to purchase Avery Greenhead Gear and Avery Sporting Dog out of Memphis, Tennessee. And, and now we're sitting here with Banded Brands that has all of that under its umbrella. And I think, I, I want to say, you know, there's Drake and there's Columbia and there's Shin and there's there's uh, other companies out there. Sitka's in the game. They're all great competitors. But I want to think that Banded is the leader. I love that name. I think it's synonymous with what we do. Band of Brothers, Banded Bird. So that's kind of the story of how the foul life was looked upon as like, hey, we want to do the show about you. His mom got sick. And then I'm like, I'm going to name a company Banded. It went from Banded Productions to Banded Gear to Banded Calls to now what we know is just Banded. And uh, it's it seems to be going pretty well. Kevin, 
That's probably one of the best stories I've heard in this industry. Yeah, I was about to say, you know, it's you hear everybody where they started, and we know where we started, but that, that's a good one right there. I got to give you that, Chad. Thank you all very much. Yeah, it's uh, it was one of those things that when I looked at that mount and I said, I'm going to name a company Bandit, I would have never, I was taught in business, you know, going to college for business about intellectual property. But all these years later, I never knew how important it would be to own your likeness and to own the brands and have that little R with the circle around it on everything you did. So learning that lesson in, in business and then and then having strong attorneys and counsel, it's, it was amazing to see how it went from a T-shirt to a, a duck call. I mean, we started with a duck call called the, the bonsai. I took so much slack. It was a double read duck call. People were like, this sucks. We sold the fire out. And then I came out with the wrecking ball goose call and the crazy train goose call. And my partner, Chris Furness at the time, he's designing them in Reno. We're cutting them out on lays. And then we got to find machinists all over the world. We're going from Dallas to Topeka to Kansas City. And we're working with all these different manufacturers of these CNC machines, bringing in these sticks of acrylic and then mastering the art of the duck and goose call. Well, lo and behold, we weren't good at it. We were good at it in a way to where it got our name out there. But once the waiters hit and once all this product started coming out, we didn't have customer service. You go down to Rich and Tone, Stuttgart, and talk to John Stevens and Jimbo and Mr. Butch at the time. You could go get a call. They'll tune it for you. They'll teach you how to blow it. They'll take a picture with you. You could have a beer in their waiting room. They got all this merch and shirts. I was like, gosh, dang, Rich and Tone's awesome. You know, I want to be Rich and Tone. But we weren't. So Bandit became the Rich and Tone of gear. And then two years ago, I broke off and started Jargon, um, got back in the duck call game, reinvented the Wrecking Ball and the Crazy Train that we launched last year, and they're kicking butt in our short reduce call. And now we got turkey calls. We got all of the, the duck calls that, um, in my opinion, I take this to my grave, that there's not a better duck call ever designed. Or, uh, my, my partner, Chris Cifrio, is a genius with machining and engineering and CAD and draws drawing. So now Jargon was born, and we're pushing that brand. Um, that came off of my passion for the vocalizations and how we can literally speak this jargon, the specialized vocabulary amongst a group of people. And when I when I thought about it, I was like, there's three different levels of jargon in duck hunting. You talk to Michael and Kevin, get down, get ready, here they come, pull the jerk string. Well, your dog don't understand any of that. So now I go over here and I'm like, Mark, get ready, watch, Axel. Well, y'all don't understand that. I'm not telling you to get ready or get down or fetch. And then the third level was the jargon and the specialized vocabulary with the wild duck and the wild goose. And I wanted to master that. Even though there's a lot of eight-year-olds in Stuttgart right now that will mop me up, I wanted to master how to talk to wild animals, an elk, a turkey, a coyote, a duck, a goose, a speck, a snow. I wanted to master that and get intimate. I think authenticity and intimacy is everything in hunting. I don't want to shoot a deer at 1,100 yards. Go do it. If it's legal and ethical, go do it. But I want to, I want to, be, I want to be up in their dish, right? I want to be intimate with them. And that was my whole mindset of working the best gear in the world and trying to get as close as possible to animals and creating these brands to try to develop all these boots on the ground and all of these teams to hear their stories like you guys do with your crew. Oh, what, you just did that in Texas? Well, at the same time, I'm out doing it in California on the Sacramento River. I hit the rock on accident with my boat and the turkey gobbled. I walked up there and called him right in. It was an amazing hunt. You're hearing those stories all the time, being who you guys are. And I thought, I just got off on that. That was my heroin. You know, like, no, I'm not make, I'm not saying that, that, that drugs are, are simple to talk about. I know it's a, an epic, you know, like a, a bad deal in our country, but it was my high. That, the, that, those animals were my high. Mm -hmm. And today, in my mid-40s, you could be driving down the road Kevin and Mike, and I'll see a 400-inch bull in Nevada, which we got them. 
and then there'll be a 205 mule deer standing there with a couple stickers coming out the side, maybe with a drop time. And then one little mallard duck will pitch his wings in a creek bed over here, and I'm turning left. And my brothers and everybody are still turning right. So when the whole world was turning right, I was turning left because that mallard duck ate me up. It just ate me up when I saw it done the right way. And that's where I think all of these brands started coming through was not not a flash in the pan, but more so of a, a passion project to where I grew up poor. I grew up with a union plumber and a, and a mom that put herself through nursing school and then got her master's in nursing. Um, but at the same time, raising three boys that were all two years apart. And so I, I realized early the, the, the power of economics and financial means and how to save and, and what it meant to be poor. And I never wanted to be in that position. So I never really worried about becoming rich and I'm never going to be rich. I wanted to create a legacy and to create brands and employees and, 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 and put food on the table for a lot of different families. So then that, hence, jumping forward a little bit, I'm talking a lot, Michael, you got me going. You're good, that's man. I, that's when I came up with the provider. And when I named the provider and registered that trademark, it was all about what you guys do every day. But I learned during the pandemic that people love this food. They just had no idea that you could go call in a wild turkey. Because we, we don't live in the inner city. We take it for granted again because we were mentored to do this. My dad had me in a backpack when I was six months looking at deer and through binoculars with him within the binoculars of me over his shoulder. Right. So we, we take it for granted that everybody in the inner city, all these other kids and nieces and nephews and aunts and uncles and moms and dads, they get to do this too. No, they don't. No, they don't. So this provider mentality came out of people being like, I can't get no pork chops or steaks at the store. Okay. We'll take this Turkey breast. Here's a recipe. What, what do you mean? Wild Turkey? Where'd you get this? Oh, I shot in California. My boat hit this rock and I went back to that story again. And I called in this turkey and I shot him and then I cleaned it out. And those are the legs and those are the thighs and those are the breasts. And here's what we do with it. Here's buttermilk. Here's T-Bone Turner's recipe. I copycatted it because it's genius and I love it, right? So I would I would tell people that. And then they're like, well, I want to go get one. So then I was like, this is a mentoring opportunity of this provider mentality is who we are. We grow gardens. We grow steers. We grow chickens. We grow pigs. We make our own. We get our own buttermilk. We grow our own eggs and, and cook our own eggs. And then we're honing our skill set to catch a trout and fillet it or a salmon or a halibut. And then we're smoking a duck and then we're killing a moose and eating the roast. I mean, how much cooler could it be than to be a provider? And my dad always said, you're put on this earth to work and to provide for you and yours. So that's how the provider mentality was born, which is all encompassing of everything we do to provide for the ducks, to provide for the families, to provide for the deer, conservation, sustainability, 360 degrees, full circle. It comes around. You're a farmer. You grow your corn. That, that, that corn is picked and harvested. It goes to the market. The deer come in there and eat the afterbirth. You see the deer. Can I get permission to hunt your cornfield? Sure, buddy. <laughs> Boom. You kill the deer that was eating that same corn. And now you and that farmer have this rapport and this relationship. And it goes full circle to where that land and that sustainability is not just feeding that millions of rodents underneath where that deer is eating, but a coyote comes in and eats one of those rodents. That farmer's doing it all. Sustainability, providing. And so that mentality brought me to my partner, Chad Mendez. Y'all know Money Mendez. He mm -hmm. was living the same life. High protein enriched, no steroids, knowing where your food comes from. And that's what prompted us to start American Almond Beef and start growing our own spheres and telling the story of that and how, you know, that went along with the provider and none and none and none all down the road. So that's that's not a nutshell, but that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> we'll call that an oyster shell. It's a little bit an bigger. Oyster shell. A little yeah. bit bigger. Yeah. But no, I mean that's awesome, uh, bro, man. I mean that that to me the 
obviously I, I enjoy talking with people that are very passionate about what they do. And you are definitely one of the most passionate people about what you do that I've ever been, you know, associated with in this industry and, and, and take that for, you know, a great compliment because Thank it's you. easy. It's easy to sit back and wait for things to happen. And, and true entrepreneurial spirits like yourself, you make things happen. And that, and that, that transfer all the way into your hunting, into your success on out in the woods and on the water. Kevin, what were you going to say? I was just gonna just gonna say that uh, provider thing. I mean, that's huge. I mean, as a farm kid growing up around here, I mean, that's something people live in my neck of the woods get it, like you said. But you don't take into account all the inner city people that have never learned even lesson one out of that, much less lesson one hundred thousand and forty-seven. Um, I mean, that's huge, dude. Yeah, and I think that, and I appreciate that, Kevin and Mike, and I think that. It's so easy to watch a TV show and be like, oh, man, y'all, anybody <clears throat> could kill ducks there. Hmm. You're in North Dakota, and you got a mojo on, and they're eating up the corn, and it's powerful. They just crossed the, the, the Canadian border. Of course you're going to get them. Anybody could kill them. I don't get to kill them. I don't get to go there. i got to stay here. And I'm like, look, if you want it, you can go get it. The, the, the lesson of what you just touched on, Mike, is you can go get it. You can go kill those ducks. Oh, I could kill all them backwoods deer that y'all get if I got to go to Texas. And y'all are probably in a high fence. So there's all this like animosity that comes out of this when, when what we're trying to do is say, go do it. This is, this is out there. This is out there. Like a monkey could kill a duck. A mallard duck has a brain this big. I am average at best at it. I just get to, I've been taught by the best in the world to where now I get to hone that skill and do it with passion to where I paid attention. I was coachable. I was teachable. I was an athlete. I played D1 baseball at UNLV. I tell the story all the time. My dear friend, Fred Dalmore, who's 80 now, my head coach at UNLV, called me the biggest recruiting mistake that he ever made in college as a center fielder coming out of high school because I got backdoor picked off against San Jose State in Stockton and lost the game for us. That killed me. But I didn't give up. Now I'm best friends with the guy all these years later after college. And now I'm hunting with the biggest names in baseball, just like y'all do. I wasn't good enough to be a major leaguer. <clears throat> but now, <clears throat> because of passion, I get to hunt with Charlie Blackman. And I get to hunt with a lot of these guys that make their living throwing a ball. Walker Bueller, arguably the best pitcher in baseball for the Dodgers right now, hunts on our show. Are you kidding me? Like, what? Like, this, that's not supposed to happen. Well, with passion and persistence and doing things right and following through, which there's maturity levels and all that, as you both know in business, I'd get caught in the first two seasons of Foul Life, Orlando, and be like, man, that's a nice gun. Oh, I'll get you one. Six months later, I'd been to 10 different states filming again. I forgot. I wasn't writing it down. I was just trying to grow and get my feet wet. But I was making promises, and I soon learned that's how you're going to burn some bridges. That's how you're going to get your butt in a ringer if you keep doing it that way. If you tell a farmer that you're going to get him a bottle of Jack Daniels or a Benelli shotgun, you best so do it <laughs> because he's going to hold you to the flames. And if you follow through... And you always fall, whether it's uh, hiding your blind or scouting ducks or taking your kid hunting. Well, if you follow through and do it with passion, good things happen. Doors open. It's not about FOMO and the fear of missing out. It's about being in the moment and being present, being like, that farmer is a, can you imagine what he's doing at 5 o'clock Kansas time when I'm still snoring in Green on Nevada at 3, p. 3 a.m. on the Pacific Coast? He's in his combine working America. That's what every country song was ever written about, and he's living it. And I'm taking it for granted? No way. I ain't going to take it for granted. So it was about follow-through. It was about leveraging those relationships and saying, how can I help you? Well, you know, I'd really like you to take my nephew out next time you come on the farm. 
No problem. Let's talk to him. Let's bring him a care package. Let's bring him a jacket, a duck call. Let's teach him a few of the basic notes and a quack on a duck call. They love that. They eat it up. And that's all because of passion and follow through and not being how I was early in my career of like, blinders on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rock this. I don't care about being rich, but I want to see Bandit succeed. And I was forgetting of those little moves that Duck Camp taught me. I better make sure I go into that kitchen and, and at Whistling Wings, I mean at, at Prairie Wings in south of, southeast of our, uh, Stuttgart and tell Mr. Billy Bogey, thank you for that smothered deer steak you just made me. And not just thank him, but make sure that he knows throughout the year with the ammo I send him or th- with the rest, with, with whatever I send him, I send him a signed cookbook. He's in the centerfold in the middle of our 264-page provider cookbook, a badass photo of Billy Bogey sitting on the porch of Prairie Wings in Arkansas. And there's a story about what this man taught me about humility, kindness, sweetness. I wish I could be as sweet as Mr. Billy Bogey. I'm too hard. I'm hard love. But he taught me these lessons that I wanted to take back and be like, I want to apply this. I want to be nicer. I want to follow through better. I want to live life better. So I wanted to improve in all those aspects. And hunting allowed me to do that. Because the people that taught me the greatest life lessons, my dad passed away in 2006. And people like you guys or Fred Zink or Tim Grounds or Phil Robertson and Willie and Jason, all the guys I hunted with with Benny Prince back in the day and Red Dog, they taught me different things. And then I'd go here and get taught different things. And then it was just a big melting pot of awesomeness. And that's what hunting is to me. It could be the provider, it could be jargon, it could be bandit, it could be Avery, it could be the foul life, it could be backwoods. It's just a big melting pot of awesomeness. If we stop and allow ourselves to live it for what it is, because we chasing a trophy deer and being in bed at 7 o'clock because you're so wired to kill a 200, that's part of it. But there's also what you're missing from 7 to 9 that could have been very unbelievable for your livelihood or your life or whatever the case might be. So I try to look at it with those kind of lenses and all, all the time, Mike and Kevin, of, I don't want to miss this. Remember the country song, I don't want to miss a thing? Like, I don't mm-hmm. want to miss it. I think Aerosmith redid it with Steven Tyler. I don't want to miss this life. I don't want to miss it because, man, as you guys know, both being god fearing man in the part of the country you all come from, it's a lot different down there when you talk about God than it is where I'm from. But I've learned being in the South how important it is. I've learned to say yes, ma'am, and no, sir. I wasn't brought up that way. But now I go to the South so much from Nashville to Mississippi all the way over to Florida and Carolinas and Georgia, everywhere, Alabama. I learned it. I learned what tomato gravy was. I learned I learned what chickens were and collard greens. And I knew how important the socializing around a table was because out here, I'm running to 90 miles an hour all the time, 190 miles an hour. In South, I got to slow down. And my good friend Adam Hood just put out a song two days ago called The Speed of the South. And it's genius of what the speed of the South is and what it's taught me. And I could go on and on about Canada and what that taught me and what being in Washington taught me and what being on the Puget Sound taught me or the Bay in San Francisco. We learn every day, and I just want to keep bringing it in because when I'm gone, I want to look back at it and be like, man, that was good, and I followed through on my word. I treated people right. I was a tough ass. I was a hard you-know-what, but I wanted to be sweeter. I wanted to work on compassion every day. You know, that's, that's the life I'm living right now, and that's what this hunt camps and what these brands have taught me. It ain't worth it to do it all on your own or be on your own. It's about what we're doing right now and knowing that we're going to see each other soon enough at a show or a hunt camp or whatever. And we're, I bet you a hundred bucks, there's going to be more time talking about life and hunting and hugging and all that stuff than there is going to be about something that is negative or pessimistic. I just don't want pessimism. I don't want it because we're, we're, you could drown yourself in it, you drown yourself. So I think that, that the main thing that I've got out of hunting camp is life. This truly is life of being in these camps and seeing what happens with the different individuals you get to meet. 
and and you, I think correlating what you're saying, and, and it's all spot on. I think all all three of us are pretty close in age, probably within a few, two or three, four years, whatever. Um, I, it's a maturation process. Is basically what it is. So the same way, like we Kevin and I started out, you know, in our twenties, you know, don't have a clue what we're doing. We we thought we did, but when we look back, we really didn't know what we were doing. But we're figuring it out. We're making our way, and that's the cool thing about this industry. You go talk to 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 yourself. You talk to us. You talk to like yesterday we were recording a, another podcast with with Bonnie and Mike McFerrin from Legends of the Fall. Everybody's got their own journey. They got their own way of doing it. And and when we were talking with Bonnie yesterday, she was even referencing like she didn't hunt at all until she met Mike. But then she became a sponge, like you're talking about, and she had good teachers. Uh, a female instructor taught her how to shoot a bow. I mean, things like that, that all make you hit the nail on the head. It's a melting pot of, of who you're willing to reach out to, to gain knowledge from, to bring it in, to learn from it, to hone your skills, and then to, you know, grind your path out. And as outdoors people, whether you had a father that took you hunting or a mother that took you hunting or nobody that took you hunting, you just woke up one day and said you know what I, i've seen chad belting on instagram enough i think this duck hunting stuff's pretty daggum cool i want to try it don't let anything hold you back from doing that and i think that's that's an obstacle like a lot of people think just like you said well i well i you know i, I can't go to south dakota or north dakota i can't go to texas well yeah you can if you want to do it bad enough you're going to figure out a way to go out there and go do it if it's getting on the phone uh talking to people going out there knocking on doors whatever it takes you make it happen if you want it bad enough don't sit back and just pour mouth yourself and bad mouth the people that made it happen i went on my first duck hunt when i was 26 so i've already been hunting mule deer and chucker and i i was in a place called the sleeper mine and jim ray hit this call <laughs> and he stood on the first note <laughs> and these gadwalls seven of them i remember it like it was yesterday <laughs> spun around i said oh my gosh I was at Walmart the next day after that trip in. I got an 835 Ultra Mag Mossberg. I got a box of Winchesters. I got a jacket that was on the shelf there. I went to duck camp at, at the Humboldt Sink probably two weeks later. I thought I was the man. Had all this gear. I was going out in an airboat. I was getting, And then I got out there. And I'm like, man, I ain't got any decoys. Totally forgot about the decoy part of it. <laughs> so then I'm like, can I borrow your decoys? And I, and I went out with a group of guys and learned some more from there. And then I was eaten up with it because it was just nonstop education of being that, what you said, Mike, of being a sponge. And I think that when you talk about you can do it if you want it, I wasn't meant to be a duck hunter. I live in the desert. We're in drought 90% of the history of this state. We don't know what rain is here. We haven't had rain in 60 days here. So we're not supposed to be duck hunters here. I'm supposed to be a mule deer hunter. I'm supposed to have a pointer in front of me on a, a chucker grouse. I'm supposed to be up on top chasing a snowcock or a mountain goat. Or a, a desert sheep, or a Rocky Mountain, or California. I was bro I was brought up to kill big game. I ha I don't even I barely even apply anymore because I'm so eaten up with those gadwalls that spun on a dime that day. So at 26, you would think ah he's probably gonna go out there and maybe like it. The next day, Soprano Sunday, I was watching the Sopranos and I'm asking Jim Ray, what did you say to him when you did that late yesterday? What were they doing? He goes, man, I told him to get their butts back here. And I go, where'd you learn that? And he said, Duckman of Louisiana DVD. Or, or as a VHS with Phil Robertson and Warren Coco from Go Devil. I said, I'm getting that. Went down to Mark Fornstrike, Piccinini family, bought it off the rack of VHS tape. I still got it signed by Phil and Jason Alden. And I was like, I'm, now I'm, I'm going to keep graduating from level to level. I'm going to learn it. I'm going to learn this. 
I'd wear people out, guys. I'd be in the truck on a coyote hunt. I'd be going, I can't get my tongue right. My dexterity, my tongue's not there. I can't. And I started mastering. And I started doing a can of goose call. And I started going from flutes to short reads and picking Sean Mansbrain and Fred Zinks and Tim Grounds. You can do it. You just got to want it. I remember Tim Grounds, Johnson City, Illinois. Hey, bub. He'd know me on caller ID. No cell phones. Just call our ID, pick it up in his shop. Hey, bub. Tim, can I please blow my routine for you? Yes, you can. He couldn't hear the tone or the pitch over the phone. He couldn't tell. He just wanted to make sure he knew that he cared, that I knew that he cared. He passed away. God rest in peace, Mr. Tim Grounds. But if it wasn't for those guys allowing me the time to be on the phone with them, I couldn't go on Instagram or YouTube back then, guys. Neither could you. We had to be persistent. If you wanted it, you had to go get it. And that was when I was 27. So just a few short years later is when that whole deal took place of hunting with Fred Zink now and getting noticed by this camera crew and getting a shot at the title and, and, and not looking back. Because it had been easy that first two years. The financial means I had going into each trip, the investment, and I'd get so stressed out, I'd be like, we're not killing them. I just hit a deer. My bumper's messed up. My hitch ain't working. The trailer just popped off. Boat just – I mean, I was – I was a mess. I was a wreck. I was trying something I wasn't put on earth to do. And I did it because I had this passion and this love for it and truly never looked back. Question myself some. We'd all be idiots to say we don't question what we're doing because we're crazy. This lifestyle's nuts, man. But it worked out. It worked out to where now I get to do business with you. I get to be friends with both of you. We're going to eat a catfish fry someday or, or some smally, like or some uh, some perch or, or or bluegill. What do y'all call them? Brim? We're going to have a brim. brim. Like that. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you imagine mm-hmm. how special this life is? We don't. Mm-hmm. We're not even supposed to know each other, Michael Lee and Kevin. We're not supposed <laughs> to know each other. I'm supposed to be in Reno, Nevada, and y'all are supposed to stay at your house in Georgia. But because of this awesome life, we're out meeting people. We're doing it, man. It's amazing to me. It blows my mind to where. You look at million, like real life billionaires and millionaires, and I'm like, my life's just as special as yours. My life's just as special as yours. Y'all are on a yacht, and I'm on a John boat. Y'all are in a mansion, and I'm in a duck blind. It's just as special. That's what the mentality of this lifestyle teaches you. They they probably have a lot more stress than we do. Not that we don't have stress, <laughs> but we don't we, we can manage our stress because we get to go do those things you just talked about. Hundred percent. I wish they got to do. <clears throat> well, you know, you talk, be, you talked about. Uh, you know, you didn't duck hunt until you're what you say, 26 or 27 years old. Yes, I'm sir. the same way about you know turkey hunting. I'd never turkey hunt until I was 20 years old, and now I mean, shoot, I got a dozen turkey calls sitting right here on the shelf made by some of the best people in the country, and there ain't a day that goes by I don't pick up one of them turkey calls and run it a little bit. I just I love turkey hunting. But, yeah, and I, I, I think it's unreal what it did, like what what turkey hunting can do to the soul and the therapy. And if you don't believe it, if you think hunting's bad and you want to be anti and you want to vote with your, you know, your, your emotions because Bambi got shot. No, he did. No, she didn't. Bambi's not real. Bambi's not real. Bambi's Walt Disney. Vote with scientific data and then go out in the duck blind of the turkey woods and see how therapeutic it is for a man going through some issues or a returning veteran. All the veterans we've had with wounds uh, that, are, that are crippled now. And what happens when they see God's creation in a duck blind or turkey woods or deer camp? You can't tell me it's not the best or special. So for, for people to shut down on it just because they they think that we're hurting those animals without doing the research to know that we are the ultimate conservation. If it wasn't for hunters, you wouldn't be seeing those elk. Okay, You wouldn't be seeing all those Canada geese in the, in the Chesapeake Bay. 
There, you just wouldn't. You wouldn't see all those turkeys in Texas if it wasn't for NWTF. You wouldn't be seeing all these turkeys in Nevada that we traded Texas for some of our desert sheep. You'd never see them if it wasn't for conservation and hunters. Yeah, we, we knock a few out of the bloodline and, and out of the ecosystem. But, man, that what we do for those populations on a daily basis is what people need to understand. So, so I would say look at how special it is to Jake Young who got shrapnel on the left side of his brain and he can never drive again. He was a SEAL Team 6 member, did 130 missions. And he can never drive a car again with his kids and his wife. She's got to drive to Winnebago because of that shrapnel. Has no short-term memory. But he was a SEAL Team 6. He was the baddest of the bad. He got in the duck blind, starts crying. I can't believe you got me here. This is unreal. Right in Idaho. I knew right then, like, we, we're lucky. We are so blessed to get to do this. And that's why those little things are so important that, that also pertain to the safety the security, the longevity, because I'm going to be damned if something happens to end this earlier than it was meant to be ended. I don't want to make a mistake that's going to be bad towards the animals. I want to have compassion for the animals, respect for the resource, and keep safety at the forefront of everybody in my duck blind or duck camp. I don't want to get all hammed up on bush light and go get in a four-wheeler at 12 o'clock at night and go do something dumb. Maybe when I was 20, I did that, but looking back, are you nuts? I could have, been, I could, I could have missed all of this. So I hope people understand that. That there is something about, you know, doing going overboard, you know, and you can. You can really do that in life. And I'm not preaching. I'm just saying you got to keep safety the first force because we are dealing with weapons on a daily basis. And I don't want to see a mistake made. So I'm very anal. I'm very transparent. And I'm always talking about what are the most important parts of what we're getting ready to experience. And it's never, never the limit. The pull the trigger is special. Killing a duck is fun. I'm not ever going to be apologetic for it. But – there's so much more that goes into killing an animal. It truly is. And, and that's what people don't realize. You hit the nail on the head is how much the, the conservation side of this thing. Think about all the work that we do and, and you do, say, you know, your duck hunting properties, you know, these farms that these farmers have that we, we hunt on, our, our own leases that we plant food plots on. And we do all this habitat management that we don't kill everything that comes and eats there. We don't kill every duck that flies into the pond. We don't kill every deer that eats in the field. We don't shoot everything, every turkey that, you know, comes in. I mean, sometimes we, we want to because we're eat up with it like that. But at the same time, look at the ecosystem and what we're doing for it. Look at all the other animals that get benefits from what we do for one animal that we may hunt in one season. It's crazy. It's a huge part of it, man. The shorebirds, like I talked about the farm and sustainability and then conservation, and you talk about eagles and hawks, show me a duck marsh that doesn't have a healthy population of eagles around. You know, right. show, show, me, show me what quail, what shit quail would be in if it wasn't for conservation because of, yeah. of all of the different land that's being chewed up. Chris Knight, you all know Chris Knight's music in Kentucky? Go listen to some of his songs about his grandpa's land and watching the last quail get shot and what it meant to see a, dry, a, a Walmart go in there and how... Like his lyrics, like sit here and tell us what's happening. You can't be mad. You can't be mad that somebody said, oh, I got this track of land. I'm going to make some money on it. That's, that's the way the world's built. But you definitely can't be mad for a hunter going in there and saying, this is where I grew up hunting and being sad about it and raising a little bit of a stink. And you definitely can't be mad about the coyote that's going to crawl under your fence and take your cat if you ain't careful because you just done built right in, right in his backyard too. That's all, this, that's all the things that go through your mind in this lifestyle of like, who are we? Who are we? We're a speck, man. We're a speck. Those ducks are way more important than my Benelli is, and I love Benelli. But those ducks are what what comes down. Can you think? Can you think of anything more tough 
than a migratory flight from the tundra down to Mexico and all of the different things you're going to encompass, let alone some dude named Chad trying to trick you with plastic ducks <laughs> and smoke you in the bay. Like that's nuts, right? And then you guys doing it with the deer and everything else. It's like there's so much more to think about than the, the taking of an animal. And no, if you just look at it, that that animal lived in God's country and lived his best life or her best life. And now she or he's on the table if you're doing doe patrol or whatever, feeding a family. She didn't get attacked by a mountain lion or a pack of wolves or a coyote that kept her alive and her blood flow because he ate her Achilles tendons out because he's a genius and they're the best hunters in North America. Probably only third behind the piranha and maybe the wild dog of Africa and success rate when they go out to hunt. Um, there could That could be a little bit off, but it's kind of there. And then you think about an arrow or a bullet going right through the lungs in 40, 40 seconds they're done and they're being butchered and processed and fed to families and homeless shelters and aunts and uncles and all these extended families and friends we have. Heck yeah, man. Heck yeah. That's the best way to go. That's, that's going the right way. So to look at it any other way of like, y'all are just massacring animal, like, uh, y'all are way off, man. Y'all are way off. If you don't let us control the predator management system here or the coyote system out West, you're going to see a massacre. And if you let them just keep growing too much and the population gets out of hand and you're not making room for the new babies, you know what sets in is disease. It's going to kill them all out. Go look at a coyote den when they get the mange. It ain't fun to see a coyote with mange. Mm -hmm. My biggest pet peeve, guys, is when I hear somebody say, F a coyote. What? What? You grew, you, you, you're in their country, man. You're in their backyard. <laughs> you better respect them. I know you got to manage them. But you know what I mean? I don't want to see a coyote in a snare trap suffering on Instagram. Think about that. Don't give them that leverage. Don't say, oh, well, that's how you do it. No, you could do it. It's ethical, but you don't need to show an animal suffering. The days of hanging your deer with his tongue out on your dad's truck with yellow rope, we don't need to do that anymore. We don't need to give them any fire. Be proud. Do it right. Harvest them right. Hone your skill set. But respect that animal. He did not die. That snow goose did not got, die to be thrown from a pickup truck onto the ground like he's a piece of cordwood. You go set him on the ground for what he just did for you and your friends and gave it up like he and the other hundreds you did during the spring conservation season. Don't disrespect them. Figure out a way to do it. I feed them to the Omaha Zoo, to the lions and tigers. We have a deal worked out with them on some hunts in the Midwest. We put them into the ground and we do street tacos for anybody that's in camp with us. Get creative. Be unorthodox and think outside the box. But don't ever disrespect them after they gave up their life for you. That is one of my biggest pet peeves of seeing Instagram that, oh, I'm the cool guy. I'm going to put this up. That ain't cool. All that's doing is letting this privilege and what Mr. Ted Nugent calls the right to hunt look bad. Let's make it look good. Let's do our best to make it look good daily. Well, bad, bro. <laughs> I, I honestly think that is a perfect wrap up there, Chad. I think that's spot well, on. I, I mean, the, to, to, Everybody that watched this and listened to this at the end, take away from it, do it the right way and have some respect for the animals because there's plenty of people out there that, that don't, uh, they don't care and they don't know the damage that they're doing for us that do care and the future of what we're doing. And that, that's, that's exactly how, uh, how we should portray ourselves as hunters every day on what we put out there in public image. And, so, and all the antis yeah. make enough ammo of their own that's not necessarily factual there's no need to give them any more. 100% correct. I agree, Kevin. We don't need to do it. We need to do it. We just need to do it right. And that's a part of that, what you call the maturation or the maturing process, that we can do this right and we can be ambassadors without being a quote-unquote influencer. We can be an ambassador of the sport 
And then we can go influence somebody through the right means instead of just trying to sell, sell them something. The real influencers need to think about not getting a like, but getting a reaction and moving the needle in somebody's maturing process and how they go about their strategy and execution of the hunt. Because I see it all the time of trespassing or yelling or fighting on a boat ramp in a public woods area in Arkansas. Just chill out. Just chill out and understand that you're going to get your time. Heck, man, you go in there and get them in the dark. I'll go in there at 10 when you're coming out and the sun will be up and I'm going to see them in their majesty. Go in there and get that turkey off the roost. I'm going to go in there at 10 and get a second one coming back after the first one. He's going for a nap. Go in there. I've learned this. Like, I don't need to be in a rush. I don't need to be all gung-ho like Beavis and Butthead. Get me there. Get me there. Get me there. I want to kill. I want to kill. I want to kill. No. I want to, I want to, I want to enjoy it, and I want to see it done right and, and have that compassion for those animals and respect for the resource. So, man, I appreciate y'all having me on. You guys do awesome work, and uh, I can't wait to see y'all soon. And uh Hopefully now that this pandemic is laid down, we're all getting back to normalcy, but we'll see here in the next couple months with the midterms coming out what what they're going to shock us with next. But, man, I appreciate y'all having me on. Ted, thank you for your time, buddy. And let's definitely try our best to to share a duck camp here this fall. It's a lot of fun, man. And a turkey hunt next spring. Absolutely. Bring it on. I'm going to throw this out there for you, Chad. I'm 43 years old and have never hunted a duck a single time in my life. Well, come on. I'll get y'all some dates for this fall and winter. We'll, we'll do it, depending yeah, on your guys' deer hunting schedule. We're at the point we shot enough deer. We need to do something. You know, you know in duck camp, you don't need to bring one of them oxygenated bags and put your clothes in there. You don't need to be – you don't ever take You don't ever take some urine out of a mallard and spray it all over you and cover up your traps with it. Deer hunters, y'all are weird, man. Hey, man, wait a second. Now, you, you might be home to something now. Don't give away all our ideas yeah, yet. You could. You could be. Hey, duck pee. That's the next company Chad's going to have to roll out, but we need a slice of the pie. Yeah, we all, we all <laughs> thought of it right here. Duck and rut. Here we go. Duck and rut. All right. Well, we appreciate everybody out there listening. Backwoods Life Podcast. I'm Michael Lee, Kevin Knight. And thank you again to Chad Belding from, uh, you know, just spending time and sharing his passion with everything that uh, he loves to do that we correlate with. Uh, y'all do it the right way. Y'all have fun out there. Y'all check out Foul Life on uh, Outdoor Channel. And always check out Backwoods Life everywhere you can.